Coming up today, the tech behind a high school prank and the hunt for COVID's origins. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to the future of tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, Amit Katwala, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. And Natasha Bernal. Hello. This was the week when it was revealed that more than $100 million worth of NFTs have been stolen since July 2021, according to research from crypto analysts Elliptic. That's an average of $300,000 per scam. This was also the week when Apple employees have protested against the company's mandate to return to the office three times a week, with a petition that argues that the policy is too restrictive and ignores the successful shift to remote working during the pandemic. And finally, it was the week when Twitter's former security boss filed a whistleblower complaint against the company. Peter Zatko, often known as Mudge, alleged that Twitter's security practices are severely lacking, including employee devices and servers not being updated, the company hiring an Indian spy, and engineers having too much access to data. How come tech company employees are allowed to have like cool nicknames? Like if I came into the office and was like, I want you to call, I know my name's Amit, but I want you to call me like Maverick or something, you'd be like, we're not doing that. But like tech people always seem to have like a cool nickname, like Mudge. I think, well, Mudge has been around in like the hacker scene and stuff for quite a long time. So like a lot of people in that space have hacker aliases and names that they use. So um, we can start calling you something if you want though. Maverick. What what would you want to be? Maverick. (laughs) Let's let's use Maverick as like a TB, like a a placeholder for now and I'll come up with something better. (laughs) That's great. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got any suggestions, please write in podcast.wired.co.uk. <laughs> um, let's move on to our facts. Matt Burgess, what have you got for us? Uh, so I've got an animal fact this week, and it is about seals. So, you know, when you see seals like sat or laying on their sides, mm. they often have their head off the ground and also their tail. So they're a bit of like a U-ish shape. Mm-hmm. Um, this is actually called the banana pose um, by some people, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're apparently they're doing this because uh, elevating their front and or rear flippers help them to regulate their body temperature so essentially keeping those parts off the ground to yeah change their temperatures and, and deal with the conditions that they're in keeping them in the air helps the airflow and move the heat away faster it sounds like a yoga pose doesn't it is that interesting interesting fact matt thank you thank natasha you. what have you got so i want to first disclose that i sent matt that fact because i saw a picture of some seals and i thought it was cute it does have your fingerprints on it yes yeah. um but i did not know he was going to talk about this fact and i also have a fact about animals and it's also a positioning <laughs> animal <laughs> fact which is unusual and unfortunate but yeah what i learned was also something i believe i shared with matt which is that when whales want to have a little nap they go under the surface at about 45 meters deep and they go vertically and they have little naps together are they head up or head down head up Head up. Oh, that's quite sweet. It's very cute. So, uh, but yeah, a lot of people didn't know that yeah. that's what they were doing. And they hadn't been photographed until like, nine, like sorry, 2017 or mm. something like that. Because no one had actually seen it happen. That's so interesting. Yeah. So two positional animal facts. If you have any positional animal facts, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they would be. <laughs> please let us know. Um, On to a story that's going to uh, talk about animals in a sort of roundabout way, Natasha. Yes. Yeah, so Amit, you've been looking into the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you remember that? And you explored how researchers have been using a variety of scientific and statistical techniques and some social media scraping to trace it definitively back to its source. Yeah, that's right. This is a story I wrote about some research that was published a few weeks ago. I kind of framed it as a scientific detective story. So as you probably know, scientists have suspected since the early days of the pandemic that the Wanan seafood wholesale market in Wuhan, also known as the Wuhan wet market, played a significant role in the origins of COVID-19. 
it was where kind of live and dead animals were being traded and where some of the first cases were sort of spotted. And the overwhelming scientific consensus is that COVID originated in a similar way to related diseases like SARS, so it jumped from which jumped from bats to humans via an intermediate animal. But as the pandemic's dragged on, they've had trouble kind of definitively proving this. And in the meantime, other origin theories have flowered. You've probably heard of them, you know, centered around this Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is a biological research lab in, in Wuhan, and the argument is that either deliberately or accidentally COVID nineteen was unleashed from this lab because Chinese scientists were doing experiments with coronaviruses so that's the theory or you know the theory that, that kind of disagrees with all the scientific consensus is anyway and figuring out exactly what did happen with COVID would be really valuable both in terms of disproving this lab leak theory but also in terms of providing a source of information about how to stop the next pandemic so for the last two years an international team of scientists has been trying to pinpoint the epicenter of their pandemic using a right a range of methods as Natasha mentioned. So in this story, I like to think I'm your Watson and you are my Sherlock. So we'll proceed in that manner, <laughs> even though I have read your story and I know where this is going. So let's let's first explore the scene of the crime. So where exactly in the city of 11 million people did the virus first jump from animals to humans? And how did they find this out? Well, it's elementary. <laughs> <laughs> let's not do that. Um, so to find out, yes, yeah, so there's a team of researchers led by a biologist at the University of Arizona called Michael Warobi. Um so there was this report that came out from the World Health Organization in 2021, in the summer of 2021. And they basically did this like joint investigation with Chinese officials, like looking at the, some of the earliest cases of COVID. So what these researchers did with this data from the WHO was to cross-reference the different maps and tables within the report to get coordinates for 155 of the earliest COVID cases in Wuhan. So these were people that were hospitalized from the disease in December 2019, right in the early days of the pandemic. What they found when they looked at this mapping of cases that most of them were clustered around central Wuhan, particularly on the west bank of the Yangtze River, which is exactly the same area as the Wanan wet market. So they did some statistical analysis on this and then confirmed that it was extremely unlikely that you would have seen this pattern of cases clustered around the market if it had originated elsewhere, i.e. a lab. They kind of compared this group of people to a random selection of similar people in terms of demographics from around Wuhan and they found that a similar selection of people from of those demographics would have been very unlikely to have lived so close to the market and even those early patients who didn't have like direct links to the market they didn't work there they didn't shop there were still more likely to live close to it so that's maybe one clue that the market was you know a, a statistical confirmation that the market was involved yeah so I think that's really interesting but obviously a high level of transmission focusing on that market doesn't in of itself imply that the entire outbreak mm. started there, right? So if you see the snapshots from later on in the pandemic, there might have been similar patterns that found in super spreader events in like center of cities in Italy or Seattle, for example. How did they determine that this was the origin of the pandemic and not just a super spreader event for a virus that originated elsewhere? Yeah, so obviously you're right. And you would have seen the same thing if there was a single introduction of a virus into a big city, you would have seen mm -hmm. a spread around the original introduction point, but that doesn't necessarily imply that COVID was born there as it were so to strengthen their case beyond the WHO data they researchers also looked at the Chinese microblogging service Weibo which is like Chinese Twitter I guess is the closest analogy so they looked at people who were posting a help um posting requests for assistance on Weibo in January and February 2020 and what they found with that was that they weren't clustered around the market but more to the west and more densely populated areas of the city and in areas with more older people so what this shows is that by January and February, the pandemic had shifted from being centred on the market to being kind of more broadly spread in line with the demographic setup of Wuhan as a whole, where it started to mirror the population density of the city. The other thing they looked at is historical kind of location-based check-ins on Weibo, which show that 
basically the, the Huanan market was not a place where a lot of people spent a lot of time. Mm-hmm. People have this vision of it as being this like cramped, super spreader kind of environment. And, you know, if you think of it like that, then it kind of makes sense that, okay, well, if the virus was introduced from elsewhere into the market, then it could have spread there. Yeah. But actually it wasn't the kind of market that you would necessarily go to very often. There were very, very few check-ins there on these social media apps. It was like quite a a relatively sparsely populated market. It wasn't that busy. And if you think about it, you know, how many people are buying live animals on a day-to-day basis? Not many. It's a very select small group of people. It wasn't like a supermarket. So it was unlikely to be the location of a super spreader event unless the virus actually originated from there. Right. So let's delve a little bit closer into this. So that work gave them the location of where COVID had emerged in this market. But how did they trace it back to its source? How could they do that? Right. So they've pegged the virus to the market using these statistical techniques. So they need to kind of figure out how it got to the market in the first place. So to do that, they turned to swab samples. So swab the Chinese scientists, when COVID first broke out, collected swab samples from all around the market. So they... This was in January 2020, just before the market got shut down. And the swabs that they did, they kind of swabbed various surfaces and then sent them off for analysis. And they found a cluster of positives for COVID in the southwestern corner of the market. So there was swabs on a glove that was found on one of the stalls. There were swabs that tested positive on a grate from under one of the cages in the market. And five of the positive samples came from a single stall. And this stall was known to be selling live animals in late 2019. And that also tallied with a photograph that had been taken by one of the researchers, a guy whose surname was Holmes, amazingly given our detective (laughs) (laughs) detective kind of theme we've got going on, a photograph taken by this guy, Eddie Holmes, who had visited the same stall back in 2014. And when he'd visited in 2014, he'd seen cages of raccoon dogs and bears were kind of stacked on top of each other. And he'd taken a photo because he thought this is exactly the kind of place where pandemics start. And, Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, five years later, six years later, this is exactly where some of the swabs that tested positive for COVID came from. Right. So it feels like the lab theory is debunked. Other theories that have emerged in the past was that someone was bitten by an animal at some point and that's how it went crossed over from from you know animal to human. So they looked at that too though. What did they find? Yeah, so the timing is interesting, right? The the, the sort of um cuz on its own it doesn't necessarily debunk the lab theory pinning it to the market and the gloves and stuff because you could still say okay, well maybe it was introduced in that southwestern corner and the photo is just a coincidence, but the other way they've looked into it is using COVID's molecular clock. So as you probably know by now, viruses mutate slowly over time. And by tracking these mutations, you can get this kind of sense of how a virus is changing and you can build a picture up of when it changed and where it was when it changed and things like that. And it had been kind of assumed that a virus jumping from animals into humans was a bit of bad luck. You know, it was the kind of thing where it happens kind of by accident and then, you know, it was amplified by bad decision making because they didn't shut it down quickly enough but actually what the research on the genetic phylogeny of what of covid what they call which is what they call it was that actually it's thought that covid was introduced not just once but several times so there was two different lineages called lineage a and lineage b that were introduced into the market around the same time and they basically figured out that this pattern of mutations that they saw was better explained by multiple introductions rather than one introduction so basically what they think is that there are actually up to a dozen different crossover events because in order for a disease like COVID to kind of take to start an epidemic, it needs to infect someone who's going to spread it widely and not everyone spreads it widely. So for in order to have two introductions that persist, in order to have both lineage A and lineage B versions of COVID spreading in the market in December 2019, you needed to have like eight, at least eight different introductions from animals to humans at that time, which does rule out the lab leak theory. Again, 
I'm going to be playing Watson here because I do know the answer. <laughs> but um, but wh- why does it matter that there were several sort of occasions when that crossover mm-hmm. happened? If if one, you know, wasn't potentially enough to get that infection rate up, mm. why does it matter that there were so many of them? So it's significant for two reasons. So if, if you're a proponent of the lab leak theory, your theory is that a person either maliciously or deliberately infected someone in the market. Yeah. So someone who worked at the lab, caught the disease at the lab because, you know, a test tube valve smashes and they inhale COVID and then they go to the market, do their shopping and they infect a load of people and that's how it kind of starts. Right. But if there are eight multiple eight introductions, you know, multiple introductions, that makes that theory less, less plausible, right? It damages the lab leak hypothesis. It's kind of so concordant with like what we've seen with other epidemics, this multiple introduction idea that it makes the lab leak theory really, really implausible. And the other reason it's important is that it sort of, there's been a narrative throughout the pandemic of Chinese scientists or Chinese government making matters worse, which is kind of fueled by mis- political mistrust and tensions. And that's true in some cases, like Chinese authorities obviously made mistakes and they obstructed access to information. But it's also important because it shows that the data collected by Chinese scientists is the only way that we've been able to analyse COVID in such detail at all. So one thing that I was really struck by is that, you know, when we were dealing with Ebola and when we was, were dealing with Zika, it took you know, a year and a half for them to figure out that a Zika epidemic was even happening. It yeah. took th- several months for them to realise that the 2014 Ebola outbreak was happening, whereas it took just a matter of weeks for doctors to figure out that there was an epidemic going on. We've got an unprecedented view of the early picture of the pandemic, and that's only because of the data that was collected at the time. And so what does this mean now? So if you put it all together, it means that we have environmental sampling data that can place the spillover of COVID from animals to humans precisely in the southwest corner of the Huanan market to a specific kind of stool. Mm-hmm. And we have genetic testing of virus samples that shows us kind of a, almost an exact date around November the 18th, 2019 for the introduction of lineage B with lineage A a week later. So that kind of gets us very close. But after that, the trail runs cold. So we know which animals were being sold in the market in late 2019. We know which ones were susceptible to coronaviruses. But what researchers don't have is a smoking gun. They don't have samples of the virus from animals that had the virus before it jumped over to humans. And the problem is that's kind of unlikely to be possible at this point, right? There are theories about how infected animals may have reached the market. So the best theory for like how COVID happened basically goes something like this. So Wuhan's in Hubei province in China and to the west of that region, there are caves where horseshoe bats live. Horseshoe bats are kind of the known reservoir animal for coronaviruses. And those caves are close to farms where millions of raccoon dogs and civets live. So the most likely course of event is something like a bat infected with a novel coronavirus flies over a farm full of raccoon dogs or civets where they're being reared for meat. It poops on one of the animals and viral particles infect one of the animals and there's a kind of unseen wave of infections among the animals on this farm. Maybe the virus crosses over and infects some farm workers at the farm, but because it's a very low density area, it kind of fizzles out before anyone really notices there's not enough population density to sustain an epidemic. But all the while, these animals are still being shipped out for export. They're being shipped to places like Wuhan for the, you know, so the one and seafood market. So where they're being sold at these stores in the southwest corner. So that's where you have this really high density of humans. You have this high density of animals with this novel coronavirus. The virus crosses over maybe eight times. The majority of those infections fizzle out without spreading to anyone else. But two of those infections take hold and start to spread. One becomes lineage A, one becomes lineage B. A few weeks after that, dozens of people in the area start to come down with a mysterious viral pneumonia. So, I know I'm going a little bit off piece here, but I'm going to ask you about an animal we haven't mentioned yet, the pangolin. Yeah. 
anything there. <laughs> yeah, the, the pangolin gets a bad rep. The pangolin gets a bad rep. It's on the list of animals. It feels that, like a smear. Yeah, it has been a, yeah, the pangolin has. Uh, has had a, a the curious case of the missing pangolin. You yeah. could call call our little investigation. Yeah, the pangolin is on the list of animals that were being sold at Wuhan Market at the time, but it's not thought to be a likely candidate anymore. The more likely candidate is thought to be raccoon dogs or civets now. Innocent, good. So let's let's go back to this investigation. Bearing in mind that they can't find any samples from animals, does this kind of mean that's the end? Can they find any definitive proof now? Is there any chance that they can move this forward? Yeah, so the animals, as you said, the animals that carried the coronavirus originally are probably long dead, right? You know, shipped off and sold for meat or killed in one of the mass culls that took place in early 2020. So after COVID broke out, the Chinese authorities kind of clamped down on the live animal trade and, and killed a lot of the animals at the farms. But there were still leads that could be followed. So they could figure out who was selling stuff in the southwest corner of the market at the time, trace the supply chains, find out which farms supplied them. They can pour over the paperwork from the culls to find out where the animals from that farm were buried. They could, if they can find out where they were buried, they could dig them up and sequence their DNA to look for remnants of a coronavirus that looks almost identical to those early human cases of SARS-CoV-2. That's going to be like a really long process. It's going to really need really like patient work and international international cooperation in a frankly quite a difficult political environment. But it could also be you know one of the few good ways we have of figuring out how this pandemic happened and figuring out how to stop the next one. I really love this story and I think it has plenty of meaty more things in it. So if you want to, you can read more in the show show notes Sorry, and on wire.com. For our second story this week, we are talking about Rick Rolls, which if you don't know what they are, it's a kind of online prank that's been running for a little while where you basically fool someone into clicking on the YouTube video for Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Rick Astley. Uh, And we're looking at one Rick Roll in particular, Matt Burgess. So at 10.55am on April the 30th last year, 2021, all of the TV screens and classroom projectors at six schools across Cook County in Illinois started controlling themselves. Screens that were turned off, powered on, projectors that were already on automatically switched to the HDMI input, and a message appeared on the screen. Please stand by for an important announcement. Under that message, there was a five-minute timer counting down to zero. And one teacher in a classroom tried to turn off a projector using the infrared remote, but when they did, it was completely disabled and useless. They told uh, students in their classroom, they overtook our projector. And this group speculated that it could be a message, the important message that was coming up from the president, or failing that, they joked it could be Big Brother. This pretty much exact same scene was repeating itself across dozens of classrooms in Illinois School District 214, which is home to around sort of 12,000 students. In classrooms and hallways, more than 500 screens displayed this countdown. The system basically had been hijacked. When the countdown hit zero, you might guess from Amit's introduction there, uh, Rick Astley appeared on the screen and started singing Never Gonna Give You Up. And this, yeah, was happening across multiple schools, uh, potentially seen by thousands of students at once. In one of these classrooms was a student called Min Dong, uh, who was a senior on the verge of graduating. He and three other friends were behind this Astley appearance, um, and they did it essentially as a high school prank for graduating. Um, As high school pranks go, it was pretty elaborate. Um, They spent months working on the sort of setup to broadcast the stream to thousands of students at once, and they dubbed it between themselves, the Big Rick. And really, it wasn't a simple process. Um, during the process, the, sc- the group broke into the school's IT systems, repurposed software used to monitor students' computers, discovered a new vulnerability in the software uh, and reported it to the creators, wrote their own scripts, secretly tested the system at night and managed to de- avoid detection by the school's IT admins throughout. 
I bet this guy's got a cool hacker nickname. <laughs> he does. Uh, well, it's reasonable. It's a white hood hacker, Ooh. which is a play on the white ter- hood. It, it's a play on the mm. term of like when you get groups of hackers, they're either white hat or black hat, and black yeah. hat ones are ones that do like malicious hacking, yeah. criminal stuff. White hat hacking is uh, like uh, security research, and then white hood hacker is a play on. Um, it's meant to be a play on, um, yeah, sort of like teenagers in hoodies being hackers. Oh, okay, because it sounds like a KKK yeah. reference. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely not that. It was more of a play on a play on words and a joke. Okay. Yeah, I would, um, I would advise him if he's listening to tweak tweak his nickname before uh, before he uses it again. Um, so this all sounds kind of harmless, but that's actually quite illegal, right? Yeah, pretty much. So uh, the students had spent months tampering with these systems, accessing stuff that they shouldn't have done. And the state of Illinois has a computer crime prevention law. And this essentially uh, makes the intentional hacking of other computers a criminal offense. I think it's it's it, within the or it's called something like computer tampering. Uh, and essentially that accessing a computer, a program or data without permission from its owner is illegal. So how did they, I mean, how did they do it? I had to take over 500 screens across different schools and different districts. But I think it was quite a sophisticated thing that these, these four guys did. Yeah, it was in some ways, but also other parts of it were quite um, quite basic. So uh, Don started hacking his school during his freshman year. This was about when he would be 14. Um, and at the time, he said he didn't really understand the basic ethics or responsible disclosure that's involved with sort of like uh, security research. Um, and he was at this time when he was 14, he was able to access two, two main systems. One, uh, something called Land School, and then also the IPTV system, which controls the screens. So... The first element of this, Land School, is a piece of software that teachers and students have. It's on student laptops. Teachers can use it to uh, see the screen of every student. They can record key, it, or it, the software can record keystrokes. It's essentially uh, a piece of, well, in many ways, a piece of spyware, but it's designed for educational purposes and used to really try and protect students in some ways, but also to give teachers a view on what they're doing. So um, these four these four hackers essentially use Land School to cover their tracks and make it look Look like their hacking was happening at another part of it in another school essentially so they logged into it in one place but made it look like they were lock- logging into it from somewhere else um and then once they got hold of this they were able to get into the ip tv system which is the system that controls the screens um and this system is made up of three different parts which has receivers that directly control uh, or directly connect to projectors and displays encoders that broadcast video and servers that allow products to be managed centrally by administrators they were originally going to use these servers that um to broadcast uh, rick astley's video across uh, all of the screens but essentially they decided that might be a bit too complex and get them caught so if they were sending out uh 500 different uh broadcasts of the of the, of the signal of the stream to all of the projectors that's going to be a lot of network traffic that mm-hmm. appears at once and admins would be able to see that and decide that actually there's something dodgy going on here might be able to shut it down or something along those lines so they decided to do it a slightly different way uh, and instead they created a script which acts as a payload um, which could be uploaded to each uh, receiver ahead of the rickroll so over the course of a month they they sent out this uh this script to all of the individual projectors doing it in sort of a few different batches to avoid uh being detected um and essentially using that and a few other systems and elements that is probably too detailed to go into here um they were able to basically set this up to start 
pretty much start streaming at the time of their attack. They um, actually had to like launch it uh, in the classroom at the time when they were doing it, just making sure that everything was operating okay. Um, and they also sort of like built out a system so that teachers couldn't turn it off. Mm -hmm. So within the code of this uh, IPTV system, there was an option to disable the infrared remotes, which okay. people would used to change the different options on the projector but they also had a loop in there that essentially made sure the projector was turned on every 10 seconds yeah. so if a teacher tried to turn it off it would come back on uh, and pretty much they created a way that it, the only way that teachers could have stopped this rickroll from happening would be to pull out the uh, the power cable on the projector things have come a long way since i was at school because i remember like when i was at school people would you could buy these like watches with infrared remotes in and then if you were like watching tv in a lesson you could like mess around with the volume and stuff like that using these infrared watches so things have progressed since then somewhat and it wasn't just one of the reasons i really love this story is because it's like very like 80s high school movie yeah. don't you think and particularly this next bit so they also managed to get into the kind of pa system which is a feature of american schools yeah so they were like before um and the build-up to the to the, the hack and putting it on the ip tv systems they were like wouldn't it be cool if we could also sort of broadcast uh, never going to give you up out of the the speakers that are in the hallways and also in the classrooms they couldn't actually do it at the same time as the video played because uh the the tv screens that were used actually use that system anyway but they wanted to try and control uh, the announcement system uh that they were doing it and while they like three days before they were due to launch the attack while they were scanning the district network for a second time they found a system called epic which is the education paging and Inter intercom communication system um, and like this iptv system uh, the group tried to access epic using default usernames and passwords um, however while they hadn't been reset on the tv system they had been reset on the speaker system and the school had reset the default password but the teenage hackers were able to look at the manuals online for this system and they found that uh, one of the sort of like setup manuals had its own um, default password on there so they like it had been changed the school had changed the um, the default password to one that was in the instructions to set it up right. and they, they typed that in and essentially that worked which gave them ultimately um, access to be able to control the bells and systems um so they changed one of the school bells at the end of the day i think it was around 2 25 3 o'clock um to play rick astley again and they started blaring it out at the end of the day as well as their uh tv screen stuff earlier in the day too so it's kind of a combination of quite high tech quite complicated stuff and quite low tech like, like a lot of cyber security i guess it kind of it's partly human error partly sophisticated loopholes and stuff like that yeah the, the students needed some technical knowledge to be able yeah. to get into the systems and move around but some of the uh the factor that the school hadn't changed default passwords and there were some passwords that were literally password which mm. in like the cybersecurity 101 it's you don't have a password as password even if it's on something as innocuous as a system that uh seemingly innocuous that uh, controls all the projectors and, and screens in a, in a school so what did, i mean the school must have been quite embarrassed by this or were they okay with it so it seems like from uh, me speaking to them and also sort of the students reaction and sort of some teachers social media posts at the time as well that they were relatively cool about it. So um, there were a bunch of other high school pranks that were happening that day. So it wasn't a completely isolated event. And when I when I asked the school about it, they said that they sort of confirmed that all of this happened. Um, and while they said that they don't condone hacking, um, they said that the incident highlights the importance of extensive cybersecurity learning opportunities that the school has. Mm. And also they say that they see it as a penetration test, which is in like the cybersecurity world, penetration tests are people purposely researchers trying to purposely break into devices to see if there are any flaws or stuff like that. So the school was pretty much said um 
we accept that there were these errors and things like that it was good that the students pointed them out to us yeah and the, and the students themselves are quite clever about how they sort of manage this right because they they treated it like a like a penetration test as you're saying they treated it like they were testing the school system and they even wrote a report afterwards yeah so um dong who was the sort of like lead uh packer coordinator behind this is now studying cybersecurity at university um and he was doing some uh, other sort of like cybersecurity qualification stuff while he was basically um conducting the big rick um and they wrote a 26 page report which was sent to the admin straight school admin straight after the incident that detailed what they had done and provided security suggestions and the report which they shared a redacted version with us basically said that the group had set out a, a list of guidelines that they could or that sort of guided the rick role and these basically said that they could, shouldn't do anything that would harm the safety of others would look to keep any disruption to learning to a minimum they did it at the end of a end of a lesson on on a Friday before exams started so it wasn't a time when there was a lot of people in class necessarily um, and they also had like various other guidelines that said that they would not access private information that they could could have done through having teacher level access to some of the systems and would essentially reset everything to how it was beforehand so they were quite actually uh, responsible and organized about this and the sort of the report that they wrote looks pretty professional too and uh, the school sort of emailed them back after a couple of weeks of this happening and then they were like we're not going to take any disciplinary action because um we think that you've done this in a, in a good way and we understand it basically the, the school use some common sense so what's the and what's the lesson here why are we talking about this Does, is there a kind of bigger point here about school security about cyber security more general that we can learn from this story i mean mostly because it's quite fun as a graduation <laughs> prank um so the team behind the hacking team behind it said they didn't launch this as a way to sort of like show that there were vulnerabilities in the school system um and it was pretty much designed to be a graduation prank but one that they decided to handle responsibly afterwards because they knew if the school didn't take it right or the school district didn't take it right then there could be sort of some sort of legal consequences or that down the line but there is there is also a in a i always like to bring a little bit of tedium to the podcast but there is <laughs> there also a little bit of a more serious point to it as well that like in the last few years we have seen a lot of schools being sort of subject to uh, cyber attacks and all of those kind of things in this incident the access that the students managed to get they could have actually accessed uh, private information personal information they could have done stuff that would be even more illegal would have been potentially damaging showing the sort of like if who was behind this attack was malicious then they could have actually caused uh, a lot further impact so um, we have seen that on a more broader sense schools have been hit by ransomware attacks there have been like national cyber security agencies like the one in the uk has put out sort of guidance and warnings to schools that they need to take some of this stuff more seriously and also i think that when you're looking at this there was a school in the us as well that last year got shut down because of the impact of covid19 and a ransomware attack combined so mm. it is a it is a bit of a serious issue that is uh yeah that people in these environments should look at but really i think it was just a, a fun prank that they tried to play it's a really it's a, it's a really interesting story do check it out on wired.com and do let us know about your legal high-tech pranks because uh, <laughs> i think those will be quite fun to hear about um that's about all you've got time for uh, but thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time bye, bye. bye.